Hi parents, are you feeling unfulfilled by parenthood? Convinced you're doing it all wrong? Experiencing a sense of shame and confusion despite trying every positive and gentle parenting strategy out there only to find that they backfire with your child and you just want things to get better? If so, you've come to the right place. My name is Bevan Walters. I'm a certified parent coach and educator with more than 25 years of experience. I specialize in supporting parents of complex kids, and I do so through my unique 3D parent model, a simplified approach to parenting complex kids. I believe that every parent has the capacity to become the parenting expert of their own children. I'll show you the way. Welcome to a journey of empowered parenting on the 3D Parent Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 89, Parenting with Dignity in Discipline, Part 2. Clearly, this is the second part of my two-part episodes that are tackling the D in the 3D Parent approach or 3D Parent model of Dignity in Discipline. This is also the final episode in what you have been listening to, the 3D Parent Bootcamp. And before I dive into the strategies and framework that I introduce when talking about how one does dignity with discipline, I wanted to first address what you might be feeling, especially if you just finished listening to part one of this two-part episode series on discipline. Sometimes parents, after hearing kind of all of the don'ts in terms of the suggested strategies or reactions to problematic behaviors with our children, sometimes parents hear those and they start feeling really guilty and they start beating themselves up. Sometimes they say, well, gosh, you basically listed absolutely everything that I do with my kids. So I'm clearly the worst parent ever. I don't want you to be doing that. Give yourself some grace. We as parents do the best we can given our current circumstances and given the information that we have and the recommendations that we are trying to follow. We're always trying to do the best we can. And when you know better, you can do better. So let's not forget that. It's not too late to make changes. It's not too late. You can go ahead and you can make some changes and not sit there beating yourself up, feeling guilty. At the same time, sometimes I hear the opposite. I hear parents who just minimize these different types of parenting strategies, discipline techniques, perhaps ones that were used with them. And they say, I was spanked as a kid and I turned out okay. My parents were never around. They never helped me out with my problems or talked me through things that were stressful or emotional. I turned out fine. Or, hey, so what? I yell. I My parents yelled. We're a yelling family. We just yell a lot. That's fine. I also want you to think about what I just said, those statements, how they are landing for you, and ask you please not to minimize. You need to know that harsh punishments, emotional neglect, and discharging your anger at your child through force or yelling, all those leave wounds. And those are wounds that can impact a person consciously or subconsciously for their whole life lives. So while I do not want you to drown in a sea of guilt, I also do not want you to minimize the impact that your parenting choices are having with your children. 
I also want to remind you that our goals as parents, especially if you are embracing this role of being the nurturing alpha, our goal is to foster authentic maturity and healthy emotional development in our children while maintaining a secure, deeply attached relationship with them. So if you are yelling, if you're spanking, if you are putting your child in timeout all the time, you need to ask yourself, is this fostering authentic maturity? Is this fostering healthy emotional development? Is this maintaining and supporting and fostering a deep connection with my child? If the answer to any of that is no, you need to rethink what you're doing as a parent when it comes to your discipline, techniques, strategies, or just your reactions that you're giving to your children when their behavior is less than ideal. Now, when I talk about discipline that is also maintaining a secure, deeply attached relationship, do not misunderstand me and think that this means I'm advocating for keeping your children happy or collaborating with them on everything. As I've already shared in previous episodes, it is essential that your children see you as the clear leader, as the nurturing alpha of your household. So yes, that means that your children are going to at times be frustrated, mad, angry at you when you set limits, when you are giving firm boundaries and limits to your children and communicating those Your kids are not going to be very happy. So you might think, oh gosh, then it's going to hurt my relationship with them. That is actually not true. The momentary distress they may be feeling at the frustration, the limit you've presented to them does not equate to them feeling like they're not secure or deeply attached or have a close relationship. In fact, the opposite is true. Kids feel more secure when they know that they can count on us to set limits and kind of show them the parameters that we are influencing them to take on as their own. I also want to remind you, like I did in the last episode, that there are just two essential tools that you need to bring to the table when it comes to discipline with dignity, and that is your deep connection and your authority as the leader. It's our deep connection which allows us to have influence with our children, and when we have that going for us, we don't need coercion. We don't need to scare our children into submission. We don't need to induce fear or punish our kids to quote unquote, teach a lesson. None of that is necessary when we have a deep connection with our children and are willing to step into our role as the alpha, the authority, the leader of our households. So this now is going to be discipline with dignity. And I'm going to be introducing you to the three parts of the approach, the three parts that I label as proactive discipline, active discipline, and retroactive discipline. This is going to be a very brief, somewhat rapid overview of discipline frameworks that I introduce to the parents that I work with. I will be going into these in greater detail in standalone episodes or when applying them to common challenges that parents often find or see or experience when it comes to parenting. So this is going to be a very broad, less nuanced introduction to proactive discipline, active discipline, and retroactive discipline, the three parts of discipline with dignity. First, starting off with proactive discipline. The purpose of proactive discipline is to avoid conflict, 
to avoid power struggles and to get your child on board with your agenda, to win their cooperation, to ignite this instinct they have within them to follow, listen, take directions, and orient to us. This proactive discipline can be very helpful if you're utilizing that when you're trying to scan the situation and the answer is yes to, is the problem with us? Meaning there may be some challenges that you're facing with your child that are relationship problems. The answer is yes. There is a problem between me and my child as it relates to our relationship. So this might look like your child doesn't listen when you talk. Your child doesn't respond when you give them a direction. Your child does the opposite of what is asked. Your child always attempts to engage in power struggles. Or your kid gives a flat out no or some other form of opposition to a direction that you have given them. These are all examples that could possibly be rooted in your relationship. Now, I say possibly rooted because there could be other reasons why you're seeing these things, observing these things, experiencing these things as a parent. But oftentimes, the easiest solution is to approach it as if it were something that can be solved through your relationship, the connection they're feeling with you at the time that you are issuing or giving a direction or attempting to lead and they're not following. I want to read you a quote by one of my favorites in the realm of parenting, which is Pam Leo. And she wrote the book, Connection Parenting, one of my favorites and first books that I read when I went through my parent coaching certification training. Here is her quote. The level of cooperation parents get from their children is usually equal to the level of connection children feel with their parents. What this means is all children have this natural instinct to follow, listen, take direction from, to orient to, and to be influenced by their parents when they feel connected in a given moment. Now, a parent and a child might have a great connection overall, a very secure attachment, but in a certain moment, that is not felt or experienced by the child in a way that will turn on this natural instinct that all kids have within them. The reason for this oftentimes can be because of a common parenting mistake, and that is to do what I call parent cold. When you're parenting cold, you're just giving directions without any connection, any any chance that your child will feel this natural instinct turn on when they hear you talking because you're parenting without connection. So that might sound like a parent who is yelling downstairs to their child, hey, time to go, let's go, it's it's time to get out the door and the child does nothing. That might happen when a parent says, okay, it's time to get upstairs, brush your teeth. When that happens and the child does not respond the way in which we would like them to respond, which is to follow our directions, it might be because of your approach being too cold and without connection. Too much of this leads to typically escalation, yelling, threats, coercion, which all of that has a damaging impact to the parent-child relationship. And all of it also trains a child to not respond until they're yelled at, to not do what you've asked until you've issued a threat or given some type of an incentive or a bribe. None of those things are 
conducive to a strong connected relationship or a child feeling this natural instinct to cooperate with us. So I'm going to introduce to you my first strategy when it comes to proactive discipline. This strategy is not something I came up with. It's just something that I use under this umbrella of proactive discipline. It is the strategy called connect before direct, very popular in positive discipline, or alternatively, it could be called collect before direct. So connect before direct or collect before direct. Both of them are cute and rhymy. What am I talking about here? Well, Dr. Gordon Newfeld, developmental psychologist that I talk about and reference a lot on my podcast in my work, he uses collect before direct. And he's talking about collect in terms of kind of you're collecting your child's instincts to follow and listen and be influenced, but also you're specifically also literally collecting their eyes, their eye contact, a smile or some form of facial recognition and a nod. And I want you to think about those three things, eyes, smile, and a nod. When I heard that first from Dr. Neufeld, I was like, oh, that's cute and all, but like, what is he really talking about? And then I was looking for that with my kids and looking for that response when I was attempting to connect with them before giving them a direction or leading them through a transition. And I saw those exact same three things. I saw the eye contact, a smile, and a nod. And those are things that you're trying to collect through the process of doing this strategy. I give my the parents I work with two different ways that I suggest using this strategy. The first way is to just find where your child is and come into their space, get into their face in a friendly way and connect with them. You need to reserve about a minute or two before you're going to give a direction or attempt to make a transition with them to connect with them. So anything that has currently has their focus, you want to kind of meet them where they are, connect with them around the thing that has their focus, and then you give the direction or lead them through a transition. So an example of that might be, it's time to go. You need to leave the house in about the next five minutes and your child has to still put on their shoes and their coat and grab their backpack to be ready to go. So I've built in already, doesn't take a full five minutes to do that. So I've already built in a couple minutes to connect with my child. So I go to where they are, I get down on their level and I start interacting with them. Let's say your child was playing with a Lego and they were building some type of a Lego creation while you were wanting to connect with them, establish a connection. So you just go and you observe what they're doing. Oh, were you building? Oh, that's interesting. You're building a house. Is it going to be a one-story house or a two-story house? Oh, wow. Are you going to put windows in the house or just leave them open air? Oh, cool. So let's see. We have about, gosh, another two pieces of Lego that we have time for you to put on. And then we're going to have to put it in a safe place so you can return and play with it and continue building after you get home from school. And then you go ahead. I sped that up a bit. That was shorter than two minutes, but you get the idea. You're connecting. You're asking questions. You're looking to collect the eyes, a smile, a nod from your child. That's an indication that they're now orienting to you and their focus is starting to shift towards you. So that's the first way that you could use this strategy, the connect before direct strategy. The second way you can do so is to connect through play or playfulness. Now, this is a great strategy, I find, if you have a very limited time. You didn't build in the extra minute or two, or you're already running late. So you got to get cooperation instantaneously, or 
Perhaps this is a great way to use a strategy if it's just more your style, more a way in which you connect easily with your child through play. Play is never a bad idea. And for some people, it comes very instinctive and other people, it takes more effort. So try both ways. What I mean when I say connect through play is let's say you got to get out the door, right? So rather than connecting with them, because we don't have time for that, or it's not really my style, I get kind of annoyed. My kid could tell I'm going to try and push them towards something else. So instead, I grab that focus and do so through saying something very silly. Like I hand them one of their shoes and say, oh, time to go here. Put your shoe on your ear. What, What did I just say? I meant put the shoe on your knee. Oh, wait, I forgot. Where does that shoe go again? That's right. It goes on your foot. Okay. Here's your other shoe now. And you make sure you put it on your ear. Oh, wait a minute. I already forgot. Where does that shoe go again? Oh my gosh. I'm so silly. Okay. Now here's your coat. Don't forget to put the coat on your head. Wait, what did I just say on your head? That's not where coats go. Where do coats go? I'm just being silly and playful. Another thing you can do that's playful and fun is if you want to get kids upstairs, let's say, you know, you have a second floor and that's where the bedrooms are and you need to move them up there somehow. You could say, hey, I got an idea. Let's pretend that we are a bear family and we're going to crawl up the stairs pretending to be mama bear and baby bear, borrowing this idea from my mom. She did this with me to get, I'm assuming, probably for the same reason, or maybe it's just her way of connecting with us playfully. I do this with my own children and I'm definitely doing it to connect through play. And so I say, okay, let's crawl up the stairs like mama bears and baby bears. And then we crawl up the stairs together on hands and feet, mama bear and baby bear. And we're all crawling up together. And then sometimes I'll pretend to get out of line. I'll go rawr and I'll pretend to kind of use my hand like a claw to kind of get them back in line. I want to let you know, I'm doing this strategy with my 11 and nine-year-old. It's still fun to connect through play and to try and get their cooperation without having to nag, yell, escalate, et cetera. Connecting through play can be a really, really great way to avoid proactively some conflict. So I suggest you try those strategies. Now, before I move on to the next proactive strategy that I wanted to talk about on this episode, I do want to address something I commonly hear from parents who give this connect before direct strategy a try. They say, yeah, it worked, but oh my gosh, it takes so much effort and time. And I'm so exhausted at the end of the day. I remind them what the goal is here. And we're trying to have positive outcomes. And I want you to also think, if you're thinking the same thing, about the alternative. No matter what, it's going to take time and effort. You could take the reactive efforts when your child does not respond the way you wish they would. When you say, time to get ready, time to go upstairs. And when they don't respond, you become reactive and you yell and you nag and you threaten. Now I'm going to take away books. Now you're going to lose screen time tomorrow or whatnot. That's one way of handling it. The other hand, the other way is to be proactive and to connect first and play a game, be playful or connect with your child before leading them through a transition. Both take time, both take effort. But at the end of the day, when you're crawling into bed, which one makes you feel better about how you lived up to your good intentions as a parent, what action you match to your good intentions. Which one of those do you think was more conducive to a strong, positive parent-child relationship? Which one are you going to bed, yeah, exhausted and tired, but you feel like, hey, I did good. I felt like I was able to lead. My child followed. It took a lot of effort, but 
it was worthwhile because we got where we needed to go and it made our connection a little stronger. That is why I want to encourage you to push past the part of your brain saying, ugh, this takes so much effort and time. It's worth it. I also want to let you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you have a young child or an emotionally young child or a child is really prone to being pretty stubborn or have a lot of oppositional behaviors, you need to spend a bit more time being proactive and using these approaches. But when your child is a bit more mature, you don't have to because your relationship is already solidly rooted and grounded. So it's a miracle one day when you say to your 10-year-old, hey, we got to go right now. Let's go. Let's get our backpacks on. Let's get our shoes on. Let's go. And they do. It's like a miracle occurred. Well, that miracle isn't really a miracle. It is your connection working. Your child doesn't need you to kind of prime the pump to turn on this instinct because it's already there and you've been sustaining it through your strong connection. So I just want to let you know that this is not forever. It's just what you do when it's necessary. I mean, I said I'd use that strategy, the mama bear and baby bear with my nine-year-old and 11-year-old. Not a lot of times. A lot of times I'm not needing to use those strategies, but they love it still. And it's a nice way to be able to connect, get them upstairs easily by just kind of turning on this little playful game that we played from the time they were really little. I'm going to talk about two more proactive strategies. And I'm going to talk about them just very briefly because of the time limitations of this podcast episode. The first proactive strategy I want to talk about is to use structures or rules whenever you have a common area of conflict or a repeated area of conflict. Things that typically fall into this category are screen time, like the amount and when, snacking, When can kids snack? When should they stop snacking so that they're hungry enough to eat a meal that's coming up? What parent puts what child to bed each night? That can sometimes be an area of common conflict. And also, who sits where at the dinner table? Those are all examples of common conflicts that can be repeated and you get stuck in this rut and you're always having to deal with these these common areas of conflict when you could instead to set some type of a rule or structure around it that can take care of the conflict proactively in some degree retroactively because we're addressing an area that's already been a problem. But it becomes a proactive strategy when you set this structure into place. I'll give a quick example from my own family. My kids, my big kids, they used to come home from school and they'd snack and they'd snack and they'd snack and they'd snack and they'd help themselves to the snack drawer or help themselves to food in the fridge. And then of course, dinner time came and they wouldn't want to eat the really good, healthy, yummy, nutritious food that had made for dinner. So this became a really annoying thing for me. And so I was always kind of policing when the kids were snacking, which I didn't like doing. They didn't like me doing it. I was having to make these decisions on the fly if it was too late or not too late. So one day I just decided to set a structure, a rule around when snacking ended. So the kids typically got home from school at about 3.15. I said snacking ends at four o'clock. So they had 45 minutes to eat till they were nice and satiated. A lot of kids don't eat a lot at school. My kids tend to eat a lot during snack time, but snack time needs to have an end point if they're going to be hungry two, two and a half hours later for dinner. So I just said snack time ends at four o'clock and I kind of laid this out for the kids so they understood this was a new structure that I was putting into our family way that we do things. And I helped us 
stick to it by setting some reminders. So there was a reminder that would go off, an alarm that would go off 10 minutes before four o'clock to remind the kids last call on snacks. And then I would kind of put some reminders on the refrigerator and the snack drawer so they knew that reminder, no more snacking after four o'clock. So what happened was initially the kids, you know, needed some more support in remembering this. Eventually the structure took care of things. It was a proactive strategy. We didn't have to actually have a conflict because we knew the rules, the structures, our house around snacking. And this thing would happen. The alarm would go off at 3.50. Sometimes they were fine. They didn't need any more snacking. Other times they had kind of gotten distracted. They hadn't had, they hadn't remembered to get enough snacking done. The alarm would go off and, oh my gosh, they would quickly go and they'd get their last minute banana or whatever it was that they wanted, a couple of crackers, handful of almonds, whatever it was, they'd have a chance to get a last minute little mini snack in before that four o'clock time came. Nothing really would happen at four o'clock, right? It was just the structure that kind of created this way we did things and solved the problem proactively. Okay. The other proactive strategy that I wanted to mention is how you can proactively work through situations that might be more challenging for your child, given their temperament or their age or their stage of development. Think about if you're about to go to an event, you're going to go to the theater or you're going to a grandparent's house for dinner or you're going to a birthday party. All of those things have different aspects that might be challenging for a young child or emotionally young child. So to be proactive, you want to not just, you know, cross your fingers and hope that things don't go sideways. You actually want to proactively talk through the event, talk through with your child what to expect what to do when, what they, so they understand what is going to happen. And you script the behavior you'd like to see in your child. You help them predict what it's going to look like the best you can. And then they know what to expect and it helps them be more able to function in an environment or in an event that might be a little bit tricky for them. When you do this, I want to suggest that you avoid making threats or giving warnings. That's just already turning on this instinct to maybe push back. It's almost inviting a conflict when you when you approach it that way. Instead, you say, I know I can count on you too. I know you'll remember. And then you also give them the support. You let them know if things get tough or you're having a hard time with this, I'm going to be there to help you. Or you let them know what they can do if they're struggling, if you're not available to them. So you kind of talk them through things ahead of time proactively. Hey there, parents. If you're raising complex kids and navigating the unique challenges that come with it, I've got something special just for you. The 3D Parent Village, your go-to parenting membership community. The 3D Parent Village is not just a membership. It's a supportive community where you can connect with other families who understand the joys and struggles of raising similarly wired children. Hi, I'm Devin Walters, the OG 3D Parent and your guide in this parenting journey. Join me in the 3D Parent Village and let's tackle the challenges together. Inside the village, you'll find access to parent education, group coaching, and an ever-expanding resource library, all rooted in my unique 3D Parent approach. We focus on parenting with dignity, direction, and deep connection. But wait, there's more! With your village membership, you'll also get exclusive access to the 3D Parent On-The-Go program. Imagine having a direct line to your own trusted parenting coach right in your pocket. Well, that's what the 3D Parent On-The-Go program provides. 
private, personalized, one-on-one parenting support with me through a convenient app. It's like having a parenting coach at your fingertips whenever you need it. So if you're ready to experience a decrease in isolation, frustration, and overwhelm, follow the link in the show notes to get all the details and sign up for the 3D Parent Village. They say it takes a village to raise a child. Never was that saying more true than when parenting a spicy, spirited, outside-the-box child. Come join us in the 3D Parent Village. We've saved a spot just for you. Okay, I'm going to transition now to the second part of discipline with dignity or dignity and discipline, however you want to say it. I intermix those. (laughs) Um, Both work for me. Active discipline. The second part is the purpose of active discipline is to be able to use your authority to set limits and or to intercede at times when your kids are struggling or there's problematic behaviors or there is a need for you to give a no and give a generous limit, maybe when your child wants your cooperation. The previous strategies I talked about related to proactive discipline, those all had to do with times that you want your child's cooperation. And with active discipline, particularly when it has to do with limit setting, that oftentimes has to do with your kid wants something or your kid wants things to go a certain way and you're having to give a no or tell them otherwise. That is active discipline. Also, like I said, it can be at times when there's a problematic, there's already an escalation, there is something going on, perhaps a fight between your children or with a peer, something like that. And you need to be able to create order, minimize harm, to be a sense of protection and safety and security for your children in your household. Active discipline could be useful if the answer to your scanning questions, the question, is there something going on with my child or is there a problem with my child? If the answer is yes, it might be because your child needs a firm and generous limit set. It might be because your child needs to practice their ability to be adaptive and resilient when things in life don't go their way. And it might be useful if, like I said, there's your child is struggling with something and you need to be able to kind of step in there as the nurturing alpha and create order or direct, you know, the activity, the location environment, what is happening as the, the leader, the guide in that dynamic. It's also a very, very useful, like I said, for children having experience facing limits boundaries, things that frustrate them. That is an essential part of healthy emotional development. And you have a very important role in that. As the nurturing alpha, when it comes to active discipline, you very much are active in your role as the nurturing alpha, setting the, enforcing the boundaries, the rules. You're also the active participant in being the clear authority figure. And you also are balancing that though with also being the nurturer. So we're setting firm but kind limits. But sometimes those firm kind limits don't sound sweet with a sweet voice. Sometimes they're very big and clear and direct when they're being delivered. I'll get into that a little bit more when I talk about the second of the two active discipline strategies. But first, 
I'm going to talk about the strategy of setting and enforcing limits. I have a nickname for the way in which I talk about doing this when I'm talking to my clients and the parents that I work with. And that is what I call traffic circling. This is the strategy nickname, traffic circling. What is that? Well, it's based on the analogy that, again, Dr. Gordon Newfeld, one of my favorites in the world of, psych- of child psychology, developmental psychology, he uses this analogy of the traffic circle to help explain the adaptive process for children. He also uses it to help make sense of what happens for a child when they face frustration. And I drew a diagram that is similar to the one that Dr. Newfeld uses in the classes and courses I have taken um, through the Newfeld Institute. I created my own little graphic that is based upon this analogy of the traffic circle. And in my show notes, I have a link to this graphic that I've created. And sometimes it can be helpful to look at that visual when you are trying to understand how to do this traffic circling strategy. So click on that if you are able to, if you're not driving, click on that link. So as I'm explaining it, it can be helpful to look at that visual and understand, but I'll also talk you through so you can visualize inside your mind what I mean when I'm talking about traffic circling with your child. Before I do that, creating clarity in everyone's role when it comes to using this strategy for setting and enforcing limits. The child's role is to go through it and experience it and for them to experience the emotions stirred up inside of them and to feel those feelings and move to the point where they can accept and adapt to the things in life that don't go their way. Their role is to basically be moved through the feelings and to get to a place where they can become adaptive and resilient when they're up against things in life that don't go their way. That's their role. They just have to go through it. They don't have to actually consciously know that they're doing this, but that's your job. You need to understand what your role is when you are doing this traffic circle strategy for setting and enforcing limits. Your role is to be the traffic enforcer. Your job is to direct traffic. So your child is going through this. You are just coming alongside to guide them towards being able to accept and adapt to the things in life that don't go their way, the futilities in life. I'm going to talk through this strategy through an example of a child who wants to have a cookie and it's too close to dinner time. So you want to give a no and you're going to give a no. So I want you to visualize now a traffic circle that has three entrances exits available to it. So when you, when your child faces something that they wish could change, that's not going to change, they get a no. When they say, can I have a cookie? You give that no. They have entered the traffic circle at the top and they're experiencing now frustration being stirred up inside them because they wanted to hear yes and you've given them a no. So what happens is this child travels along this traffic circle and they want to take the first exit through the change exit. Your job again as the traffic enforcer and directing traffic in your job is to keep the door to change or the exit to change firmly closed. So when your child is trying to avoid facing or accepting a limit, they're going to pull out all the stops to get you to open up 
that exit towards change. They're going to negotiate. Oh, can I please just have half a cookie? Can I have just a chocolate chip? Can I have a crumb off the side? Gosh, children can be really ridiculous when they're trying to avoid adapting to a limit. They might just repeatedly ask you like a broken record, please, please, can I just have one cookie? They may reason with you. You gave me a cookie yesterday. You you said yes before, or they might try to negotiate. Like I already said, can I have half a cookie? They might say like, well, gosh, if I eat a bunch of broccoli right now, could I have, they'll do all kinds of things to avoid adapting. They don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It draws up all this frustration inside. And again, if you've had the tendency to compromise, give in, fine, go ahead, have half a cookie, then your child has gotten a lot of practice at getting you to change and to get through this exit. What I want to encourage you to do, particularly if you have a child who does a lot of this or who really struggles to accept the limits, the no's, I really want to encourage you to keep the door the exit towards change firmly closed. Again, your job is to be the traffic enforcer. So you have set a limit. You've given the no. Your job now there is to say, nope, sorry, I can't allow you to have a cookie now. And then you need to mix in that nurturing side of this. So it's okay to validate your child's struggle. I understand you wanted me to say yes. And I said, no, you don't like the answer that I gave you. You, you have every right to feel frustrated. I get that. So you're validating. You're letting them know that you understand that they're upset by this. You're okay with the fact they're upset by this, but you're not going to come out and say that. You're saying so just by saying, I accept your emotions around this. Your job is now not to try and get your child to feel badly about having an emotional response to the limit. You don't want to make things worse or push them or shame them or now Increase the frustration. Your child is already struggling with the frustration they're already experiencing hearing no cookie. Sometimes parents who have a hard time with their kid's persistence, they'll make it even worse for their child thinking that might help. Okay, now that you're you're asking me so many times about the cookie, you're not going to get any dessert tonight after dinner. Oh gosh, if you ask me one more time, you're not going to get a cookie another day this week. Hey, you're not going to get another cookie your whole entire life. We'll escalate with our child If we don't know what our role is, it's not to escalate. It's not to increase the frustration. That makes no sense. A child who's already struggling with their frustration does not need a bigger load of frustration. That's not going to help them. So instead, we just resist the temptation. We also accept that if they're having a hard time with this, it's just an indication of how much practice they need at this. So don't want to make it any harder for them to move towards being able to accept and adapt to the frustration at hand. So you can go ahead and restate, I know you wanted a cookie and I said, no, you validate the difficulty, the feelings that they're having around the limit. And you look for their shift from that persistence till when they finally just feel sad. That's an indication that they have entered the realm of being adaptive and accepted the limit that you have set. So it's that shift from that anger, that tantrum, that frustration to just sadness. And when you have a young child, that might be literal tears of sadness. If you have a little bit more mature child, it might be figurative tears. They might just look sad or kind of have slumped shoulders when they are disappointed with your answer. But that is a sign of an adaptive child. 
Now, every time a child is faced with the same or similar no, if you have been a really great traffic enforcer and that exit towards change has stayed closed, your child will not need to spend so much time getting to the adaptive state. Eventually, they just say, okay, fine. And they are disappointed. They're sad, but they don't have to go through all the rigmarole. And if you are really good at being the traffic enforcer, they'll get there sooner rather than later because they know that limit means something. They know that the futility you've presented in front of them is reality. They don't need to keep on checking every time they come up upon a same or similar limit. So you have to stay consistent and keep that firm limit in place. Now I want to talk very quickly. I'll talk about this more and I've talked about in past episodes of my podcast about aggression. So sometimes a child recognizes that the exit towards change is closed, but uh uh-uh, they're not going to adapt and accept that which they wish could be changed and is not going to be changed. So they bypass the exit at the bottom of the traffic circle. They swing out in another direction towards aggression, towards fight, towards anger, and trying to kind of unleash their frustration towards other people. That is the root of where aggression stems from. It's a adaptive kind of mechanism that is conscious. It's not something a child is choosing to do. It's their brain saying, oh, no, 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 don't go in the direction of accepting because that's too hard. That's too painful. And instead they feel moved to attack. Your job again, as the traffic enforcer directing traffic is to reroute your child around the traffic circle. A lot of times parents get stuck in addressing the aggression and then they start punishing the aggression or I can't believe that you just said that to me and how dare you say you hate me. I do so much for you. They get trapped in this exit with their child and their child, while of course they're not having a good time when there's mode of aggression, what they have successfully done was avoiding adapting to the limit because now they're all out in this attack mode. So what you need to do when you're rerouting your child around the traffic circle is you put in front of them again, the thing that they were frustrated by in the first place. You remind them of it. That is sending them back around the traffic circle. They do another bypass. When you say, I can hear you're very frustrated that I said no cookie. I can hear it with your words. When you say, I hate you, mama. I know it's because you are so mad that I said no cookie. So you're basically just like bypassing. Now, if it's physical aggression, it's okay to address very briefly. I'm not going to let you hit and kick, but I understand you're very frustrated and you might hold someone's hand, a child's hands if they are actively hitting and restrain their hands from being able to hit you. But at the same time, you're not saying, I'm going to hold your hands. You're not hurting me. You're saying, I'm going to hold your hands because I get you're so frustrated. You did not get that cookie. So again, the point is to reroute the child around the traffic circle so that they can make another pass at being able to become adaptive. Once they get to that sad place, they can cry about the things that don't go their way in life and get to a place of being resilient. They realize it's survivable. Hey, I didn't get what I wanted. It didn't feel really good, but I survived that. And they feel more resilient and better able to cope with the same or similar limits that are presented in life. And one little last tidbit before, and again, I'll revisit this on future episodes in more detail and with more examples. But real quick, I want to encourage you when it comes to this traffic circling, a lot of times parents think, well, 
I'm going to choose my battles. You know, if I put a blue cup in front of my child and they want to have a red cup, I'm just going to choose my battles and just pour the milk in the red cup and not have to deal with, with them freaking out about it. It's just, I'll choose that battle. I want to have you think about that for a minute. When it's the small stakes stuff, the stuff that doesn't really matter, when we're choosing not to uphold a limit or something that's frustrating our child and say, you know, sorry, I poured the milk already in the blue cup. We're going to stick with that today because it's already dirty. I don't want to dirty another cup. We're going to stick with the blue cup, but I understand you're frustrated. You wanted the red cup. When we choose the small stakes frustrations, we're giving our child practice at becoming more adaptive. Yeah, I could have just poured it in the other color cup and gotten on with life, but I've missed an opportunity for my child to make it around the traffic circle and become adaptive. And we're building a muscle here. So if we're just waiting for the the bigger issues, we're starting with a bigger weight for our child to be able to carry. We don't want to wait for the bigger issues to be able to practice them being adaptive. We do want to start with the smaller the smaller things, because as they're building their ability to accept limits, accept things that don't go their way, they're going to be able to be better primed to be able to handle the bitter, bigger stakes, frustrations in life. This ability to be adaptive is essential to emotional maturity and health and well-being. So do not put this on the back burner and get going with it right away, particularly if your child struggles to hear no or when they don't get their way. The second strategy that falls under the umbrella of active discipline that I'm going to talk about is having to do with incident management, meaning there already is a meltdown. There already is a fight broken out between siblings. There already is a toy that's getting destroyed with how it's being played with. There already is a child who is screaming and yelling and melting down in a restaurant. Something is happening. This is useful when you don't have time to do the three-question scan of, is it me? Is it my child? Is it us? You just have to take action somehow. This also is the time when your brain is saying, what do I do when? What do I do when? And you don't have time to kind of make sense of, oh, what's driving this behavior? A lot of times it's really obvious, but when it's not, and you just need to deal in the face of some type of problematic behaviors you're going to use the strategy that I call the three do's of incident management. What you're doing here is you're creating order. You are 100% in the role of alpha, ready to take charge. But what you're taking charge of is what might be different than you think. A lot of times parents go straight for trying to take charge of a child's behavior. Stop playing with that that way or I'm going to take it away. Um, stop yelling in the restaurant or I'm going to have to take you outside. We go right for the child's behavior and we try to control the behavior. That is going to lead you down the road towards frustration because the reality is we actually cannot control another person's behavior. And when we go for that, we are putting the child in charge. They get to decide if they're going to listen. They get to decide if they're going to do it or not do it. So instead, we want to focus on how we, what we control and how we do so. If we go towards the child's behavior, we're going to be more likely to go towards threats, coercion tactics. And again, we're trying to move away from those. So the three do's of incident management. I know it's a very fancy title. It's the best I've been able to come up with. I really just want you to think about the three do's. 
maybe forget about the incident management because it sounds kind of ridiculous, but hey, that's what I got right now. That's what I'm calling it. The three do's. Do number one, do no harm. This truly is the first step, step, and it's all about you and your emotional regulation. A lot of times we just immediately react and we go right down the road towards wounding behaviors. Step one, do no harm. It's better to do nothing than to do something that is going to cause damage to your relationship with your child or wounding to your child. And we can't take back those words if we say them in a moment of dysregulation. So step one, do no harm. Avoid actions that cause fear, like threats, yelling, physical punishment, or physical grabbing our children too hard. Avoid blaming kids for your feelings, saying things like, that hurts my feelings, or you're making me mad. That's a threat. Avoid that. That does harm, and we're doing no harm. You want to avoid saying things like, hey, when you act that way, I don't want to be around you. That's rejecting. That's using your relationship against a child that causes harm to your relationship with them. You want to avoid using discipline techniques like timeouts, social isolation, ignoring them in these moments. And you also want to avoid coercive tactics like punishments or imposed consequences, bribes, things of that nature. You temper your emotions first. You might have to take a deep cleansing breath or quickly say to yourself inside your bread some type of a calming mantra like this is not an emergency or it's okay for my kid to have a tantrum. What other people think about my child tantruming is none of my business. Whatever that inner mantra that helps you just quickly focus and regulate the best you can your emotions is what you need to do. Now, you don't need to stay calm and like, oh, I see you're having a fight. That's not the idea here. Regulated emotion is equal to the task at hand. And if you're going to go take charge, you do need to have some degree of heightened emotion behind you to be strong and step into your alpha presence. And that takes me to step two. So step one, do no harm. Step two or do number two is do take charge. But again, we're not going to try to control the child. Instead, we're going to take control of circumstances around your child. That's what you can control. So examples of taking charge of circumstances might be the environment. You might need to change locations. If your child is not listening at the park, you need to exit the park. Exit the grocery store if your kid is freaking out about something that they want and you won't get them. You may need to change seats at the restaurant dinner table if your child is getting really dysregulated next to their sibling. Take charge of what you can control. If your child is playing with a toy really destructively, remove the toy. You're not going to say, oh, don't don't play with the toy that way. Oh, you're, you're breaking that toy. Oh, if you do that one more time, I'm going to take it away. Nope. Just step in and take charge without warning. As soon as we start giving warnings, we're going towards coercion. We're going towards, if you do that one more time, I'm going to take it away. Now it sounds like a threat. Who is in the powerful control position right then? Your child. Instead, you just take action. Control what you can. The toy is being played with destructively. Oh, looks like playing with that toy is not working right now. You pick it up. You put it on a shelf. This isn't working is my favorite catch-all phrase to take charge without doing harm. No one's being blamed. No one's being shamed. It's just, oh, this isn't working, so we're going to leave the park. Oh, this isn't working, so I'm going to take you outside to go 
walk around the block while we're waiting for our food at the restaurant. It's taking a long time. And it's really, really hard. Oh, this isn't working to play together right now. So I'm going to go figure out a place, something for you to do over here. And you're going to go play over here. Separation, taking charge. That is what you can take charge of. And use that phrase, this isn't working until you come up with your own words. That's a really great one to communicate. I'm in charge and I'm going to do something right now. Now your child might have a response an emotion when you take charge, that's okay. You're going in there and you're creating order. If your child is running away and going out of sight and not staying within a safe boundary that you have kind of like laid out for them within a park, time to go. And your child might have a huge tantrum about going. That's okay. They get to feel upset. You also get to take charge and accept your child's going to have some feelings about that. Now, don't go down the road of punishing them for that. So again, the first do was do no harm. The second do, do take charge. The third do, do circle back later. A lot of times parents are like, well, I've got to teach a lesson or I want to explain to my child why this can't happen. Oh, the kids are fighting with their sibling. I want to figure out what happened. That's not the time to do this. You want to buy yourself time and wait until the emotions have come down. Then you can circle back. Sometimes parents think, oh gosh, I'm never going to address the problematic behaviors that my children have. You get to, just not in the moment when there is heightened emotion for your child, yourself, or both of you. So you can let your child know you'll address it later. That's fine. But do wait, okay? Do not attempt to make progress in the moment. Do not attempt to teach a lesson, to reason, be judge and jury. You're buying yourself time and then you could address it later. And then keep in mind, you may decide later it's not even worth revisiting. And my kid melted down because she was tired. I don't need to go revisit that later and teach a lesson. I just need to get home, get my kid to bed, get them some rest. Sometimes you just need to take charge and then you can move on, let it go. Remember, for young child, emotionally young children, most behaviors are impulse-driven, and that will decrease with time and increased maturity. So if we're spending all this time teaching lessons and shaming a child about making a bad choice or wasting our breath, we can definitely circle back later when everybody has calmed down. It's really necessary to circle back when there have been lingering hard feelings, when there's a repeated area of problem or conflict, or when there was like a larger, more significant incident that you want to go back and address later once everybody has calmed down. The reason you're doing that is to restore connection, to be able to address problems and problem solve when necessary. And that brings us right to our final part of discipline with dignity or dignity in discipline. And that is the third part, retroactive discipline. This is when you get to go back and cover something that happened in the past. The retroactive discipline, something that happened in the past that you're going back to, the purpose of this is to take the lead in repairing, making amends, also in soliciting good intentions as a way to address problematic behaviors with your child so that you do not go so through, try to do so with shaming your child. And I'll get into that in a second. This is appropriate. Also, you use this strategy when maybe there's something you need to problem solve with your child and you want to kind of have an opportunity to talk about something and either 
share what is going to happen or perhaps engage with your child in some collaborative problem solving when age appropriate and necessary. And that is what you think is the solution at that time. The role of retroactive discipline is in also being able to help foster that highest form of emotional maturity, the ability to be reflective. When you're going into a retroactive, you're looking at something that happened in the past, you're walking beside a child and helping them become more reflective when it comes to their behaviors or actions. They may not be at that stage of development consistently yet, but you can certainly walk them there and guide them to be reflective in the way in which you use this retroactive discipline strategy. This is also very important to help build your child's capacity to feel remorse and to take responsibility for their actions. So all of this is really, really good stuff in a place that I feel like most parents I talk about are missing opportunities. Now, trying to do too much in a moment of heightened emotion or in the middle of a problem, and they're missing the opportunity to actually make real progress when there's been a little bit of time and separation. So I'm going to introduce now this strategy I call the circle back conversation, circling back, circle back conversation. It's very important that you take in consideration timing. You have to buy yourself enough time for your emotions and your child's emotions to have become calm and there be no more frustration that is noticed for either yourself or your child. So this might be, I don't know, 30 minutes later, an hour or two later, later on that day, even another day, months, weeks can go by and it's still worth it to circle back. You do not need to have it as soon as possible because that might actually sometimes lead you to talk to a child who is very closed down and not willing to engage and maybe still too full of frustration. And I also wanna let you know that it's never too late to have one of these circle back conversations, even if it's something that happened, like I said, days, weeks, or even months ago, it's never too late to go back and revisit it and talk through it in this more reflective fashion. You need to make sure that you enter into one of these conversations when the context of connection has been established. So again, timing is important. Also feeling a sense of connection already established between yourself and your child. There are four steps to this circle back conversation that you may need. Sometimes just three steps. And I'll explain when you need four and when you need three, and sometimes just two. So there are four possible steps of the circle back conversation. Step one, always when relevant, is to make amends, to make a repair. This is for you, the parent, to take the lead and taking responsibility for anything that you realize upon reflection that eh, I made a mistake, I yelled, I threatened, I overstepped. And you know, upon reflection that I did something that was wounding to my relationship with my child. You take the lead in making that repair. Don't wait for your child to come to you. You go there first. That's really important, particularly when you're being the alpha in your nurturing alpha role. You make an apology. And this is an apology that you make that is a good apology, which means that you are not going to be blame shifting. You're not going to be justifying your behavior. You're giving a no buts apology, a simple, I'm sorry, I yelled at you. You did not deserve that. I should never have yelled at you. And I'm so 
sorry. You leave out the, but it was because you were behaving like a little jerk or, but it was because you were making me angry or, but it was just because I had a really hard day today. I'm sure you understand that. No, as soon as you say, but the apology goes away. The repair is not made. So you leave out the butts. It may be true that your child's behavior was completely out of line, but that is not what you're starting off with. You're starting off with taking responsibility for anything that you did. Even if it was like, eh, kind of minor. If you start the circle back conversation with, hey, I really owe you apology. I made a mistake early and I want to take responsibility for it. There is not a child around that I've ever met that would say like, oh no, I don't want your apology. They usually were like, okay, yeah, bring it on. I'll take it. So when you start off that way, this circle back conversation, your child is already open and not closed. And that's essential for this to go well and be effective. After you've made your apology and taken responsibility, you do not then in turn request or ask for your child's apology. Now, if your child naturally apologizes or take responsibility, that's great, but you're not going to require that they do so or try to coax an apology out of them. This will happen and will happen more frequently the more they get used to this type of a conversation because it feels so good to make that repair and to take responsibility. But initially, they may not say one and that's okay. It will come with time, okay? The most important part of this whole circle back, circle back conversation is the repair and you taking responsibility for your mistakes. It's the only part of this that you need to get right. So do not think, oh, it's just, you know, I don't really have to apologize. No, making that repair is essential for your relationship with your child. It's the only part you need to get right. Step two or step one, if you don't have anything that you need to take responsibility for, let's say you didn't make a mistake. You might have used a firm voice, which was appropriate given the circumstances of what was happening, but you didn't yell and scream. You didn't lash out. You didn't threaten. You didn't shame your child. You actually kind of hit it out of the park. So you don't need to start the conversation with making amends in these cases. You always start with it if there's anything you did that you need to take responsibility for. But if you didn't, then you start here. So step two after the amends has been made is for you to talk about your child's behavior, but you're going to do it probably differently than you've gone about it in the past. A lot of times parents will say, okay, I want to talk about what happened earlier. And I want to talk about how it's not okay to hit your brother. It's not okay. Hands are not for hitting. It's not okay to hit. That's not okay. Yada, yada, yada. It's not a matter of your child not knowing that. Unless you have a very young child under the age of like one and a half, chances are they know better. They just couldn't do better in that given moment. So just trying to teach them a lesson or make them feel bad or shaming them for their mistake is not the way to go. Nor is it a great idea to talk about this in terms of you made a bad choice. A lot of times people use that language of choices in an attempt to try to tell a child that they're not their mistakes, that they just made a bad choice. It still is judgmental. It still induces shame in a child and shuts them down and doesn't open up the possibility for them to feel this authentic remorse develop inside them because you've just coated them in a big blanket of shame. So how do we talk about behavior that's problematic without teaching a lesson or shaming our child? 
You're going to do it by soliciting their good intentions. Talk about the good intentions that they could not act upon in that given moment for whatever reason. And this might sound like this. You know what? You're a really kind, loving boy. I know you care a lot about your brother and I know you care about his feelings. I also know you would never intentionally hurt another person. I know you didn't mean to lose control and and hit your, your, your brother. I know you know that hitting is not okay. I know you know that. I know you would never do it on purpose. You just had a hard time. You lost control. You lost your temper. You're still working at that. You had a tough moment. I get that. We all have tough moments sometimes. And I know that's not who you are. You're a really kind, loving brother to your brother. You are very kind. He looks up to you so much. I know you would never do anything to hurt him. That's not who you are. Listen what I did there. I talked about how the best version of your child is, not the mistakes, the bad choices, and all of that. I talked about this best version of a child that they just couldn't act upon in that given moment. That is how you talk about problematic behaviors. The idea is to focus on the well-intended best version of the child and bring that to consciousness. This is so important because kids, particularly really complex, challenging kids that have a lot of challenging behaviors, they hear a lot of negativity. They hear a lot about, you made a mistake. That was a bad choice in their life. And their narrative, the way that they view themselves is impacted by that. I'm a bad kid. I make bad choices. We don't want our children to be thinking about themselves through this narrative. Instead, when we talk about their best version of the self, you are a kind brother. You don't, you know, it's not okay to hit people. You would never intentionally hurt someone. The narrative that starts building inside their head is one of good intentions and kindness. And that's the narrative we want them to be building the story of themselves. We want them to be thinking about who they are. The next step, step three, after you've made your amends necessary, after you have talked about good intentions, is just to really quickly reinforce when necessary, when it seems appropriate, that although the behavior may have not been okay, that your relationship is okay. This is particularly important if the behavior was directed towards you. So saying like, hey, you know what? I know you got really frustrated. I know you didn't mean to um, lose your temper and say, I hate you, mom. Guess what? We're okay. I didn't believe you. I knew you were just frustrated. So you take the lead in reassuring your child that your relationship has not been damaged. You don't want them to carry around this sense of like, oh no, I messed up. Our relationship is not secure. You let them know just how secure it is, how unconditionally you accept them, even when they behave in a way that is not in line with who they, their best version of themselves. And then the final step, step four, this is optional. This is not always necessary, and that is to problem solve. This can be really helpful, particularly if there seems like there needs to be something wrong that needs to be made right. For example, maybe a child damaged something that belongs to somebody else, or maybe it has to do with one of those sibling squabbles or a fight or something they did unkind to somebody, a friend or something. This is a good opportunity to following the good intentions talk to be able to say, hey, you know what? I know you didn't mean to act that way. That's not who you are. Let's see if we can come up with a plan on how to make things right. What do you think would be a good idea? You're going to collaboratively problem solve. When you approach this this way, your child is going to feel some sense of remorse, which is a very vulnerable feeling that is, you need to feel very safe to feel that. 
But that leads to wanting to take responsibility. So you partner with your child to come alongside them and you help them come up with a, a solution to make things right. You don't say you need to go give your your uh, brother an apology and then write them a note and then give them something of yours. That feels very punitive. When it comes from within and your child comes up their own way to make things right, to make amends, to repair, you are helping them know how to do this throughout their life. So listen to their suggestions. They may come up with ways to make repairs that are maybe like a little outside the box. That's okay. This is all a process. And the main thing is that your child is being able to take action when they feel a sense of responsibility over their actions. And that is what is so important and necessary and why doing this retroactive discipline and circle back technique, this conversation can be so powerful. If you try to initiate one of the circle back conversations and your child doesn't seem really open to it, just move on and you could you can go try again at another time. Perhaps they're still frustrated. Perhaps they're just too closed off from feeling that sense of remorse. You can keep it quick and then move on later. Just know that your child might need a little bit more of a gentle approach. Maybe you need to work a little bit on the timing. Just keep trying. Don't ditch this part of the discipline process. This is the conclusion of the 3D Parent Bootcamp. I know this was a really jam-packed episode. As I said, I'll be talking about these strategies more in isolation on future episodes so I can go into a little bit more depth and also, like I said, applying them to common challenges that you may be experiencing with your child. I hope what we've covered during these six episodes is helping you feel more empowered in your parenting and more like you're on your way to becoming the parenting experts for your children. I want to leave off with a message of encouragement and empathy. Parenting is this incredible journey, and it can bring up a lot for us, including a lot of mixed feelings. Some of these feelings, of course, are joy and pride in our children and our own capacity for love even beyond what we didn't know we were capable of. But oftentimes alongside those wonderful feelings are feelings about our inadequacy or guilt or regret or frustration about having a hard time parenting or guilt around our mistakes. There's so many mixed feelings that swirl around us in our roles as parents. I just want to let you know and encourage you to realize that you have it within yourself to provide exactly what your children need. Trust yourself. Trust your children. You are their answer. And you have it within yourself to provide your children with exactly what they require to grow, mature, and flourish. This is just the beginning of season two of the 3D Parent Podcast. I'll be back each Sunday with a fresh new episode full of 3D parent-infused wisdom. Until then, take care of yourself and your families. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope our conversation has inspired your journey towards building deeper connections with your children and strengthened your resolve to match your parenting intentions with your words and actions. If today's insights resonated with you, The greatest thank you I could receive would be for you to subscribe, rate, leave a review, and share my podcast with others. And for those of you seeking more support with your parenting, 
consider joining the 3D Parent Village, a nurturing membership community designed for families raising complex kids like yours. Inside the village, connect with like-minded parents, find relief from isolation and overwhelm, and gain access to educational resources, group coaching, and personalized support, all rooted in the transformative 3D Parent approach. They say it takes a village to raise a child. Never was that sentiment more true than when parenting a complex child. So come join us at the 3D Parent Village. We've saved a spot for you.